We will, uh, just so you know, we're in the second week of a series that we're calling The Anatomy of a Disciple. It's connected to a whole set of videos in something called Right Now Media. And Right Now Media is, if you've never heard of it, it's kind of like the Netflix of Bible studies. Uh, there's all sorts of programming available on there. Uh, if you're wondering, I want to do this more or grow in this area, and you're not a reader, they have videos that will actually help you, and you can watch while you're doing the dishes or... Uh, hanging out or whatever, and you can enjoy those things. They also have a whole library of children's programming. Uh, so if you're in the grocery store and those kids just will not be quiet, you can pull that up and VeggieTales them uh, into submission. Uh, <laughs> but they have all sorts of uh, besides VeggieTales things uh, on there. But if you want to be on Right Now Media, our church actually uh, provides a login for anybody who wants one, so you can get onto that through our Facebook page or through albanygrove.com and, and enjoy that. Uh, there is this anatomy of a disciple, like when you go, there's Grove Picks, Grove Church Picks at the top, and this series is up there. If you're not in a life group, uh, but you want to check out the videos during the week because they're uh, this pastor from California who created this uh, work in his church has actually created these videos, and you can get more in-depth which uh, as far as how we're trying to all push and grow spiritually during this time. So um, what it is to be a disciple is to push past just, I like Jesus. A uh, disciple is actually someone who follows Jesus. You can like lots of things, but to actually follow and actually say the words and the teachings and the ways of living that Jesus did uh, we're actually, I'm going to apply into my life, and Jesus is going to be in charge of my life. It's a big step, but it's actually a step that Jesus called all of us to. He wasn't trying to get likes. He wasn't trying to be popular. He was trying to change the world through making disciples and then asking those disciples to make more disciples of Jesus as we follow his ways and his teachings in our daily lives. So I want to share some things with you this morning in that way. To start with, if you have a Bible or if you use an app, we're going to start in John 2. It'll all be on the screen because we're going to jump around a little bit today. But uh, to start with, we're going to start in John 2. Um, but when Jesus walked on this earth, he was on this earth uh, in Israel, like the real country of Israel, and he really walked on this earth uh, and uh, really interacted with people around him. And he was a Jewish man. Uh, as a Jewish boy and then a Jewish man. And when you lived in Israel as a Jewish man, the center of your country was the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem was historically, like now for thousands of years since at the time of Jesus, since Abraham, uh, we see in the scripture that the city of Jerusalem was a particular place uh, where God seemed to live. And, and it would always be, if you read your Bible, even if they were going south, everyone was going up to Jerusalem because it was on the top of this hill. And so you would, the Bible has these songs in the book of Psalms that are called Psalms of Ascent because you're walking up to Jerusalem. And these would be the songs that you play as you're going up to Jerusalem. Well, not play. That's what we do. They would sing uh, those songs. Maybe play them on their instruments, but they didn't have radios. So uh, that was not in my notes. But they, as you walk up to Jerusalem... Uh, you would sing these songs, and you this kind of looking up and seeing, this is my city that God has established. This is the place. If you've ever had the chance to go back to Washington, D.C., go back east uh, to Washington, D.C., uh, you just feel like this is, I'm not even American, and I was like, this is my place, right? Like, it just, 
You have this overwhelming, uh, like, we belong here kind of sense. If you've ever been to Canada's capital, too, you'll feel much the same, but you'll apologize for it. But um, there is, you won't understand the statues. And if you've been to D.C., you've got to see, there's a statue of George Washington with his shirt off. I took multiple pictures of it. Like, they, they just made him stacked. And it's like, that, that is a little founder of a country, right? Like... Canada statues is like the bald guy, and you know, but America knows how to do it, but uh, that's why I'm living here. <laughs> but there is uh, this kind of sense that people would have in going to Jerusalem, that we're going to the city that, where God lives, or the city that, where God blesses us, and they would go up there. It was commanded in Scripture to go to Jerusalem. They would have these festivals um, like the Festival of Booths or the Passover Festival where they remembered important things in their, in their history. It's like if you've been to D.C., it's something, but if you've been to D.C. on July 4th, it's something completely different. Or if you've been there for a presidential inauguration, it's completely different. These, these amazing moments in their national history, and their national history is very much connected to God. And so Jesus would go to Jerusalem multiple times every year. And there are stories of Jesus as a young man and then as an adult where he's going to Jerusalem. And when you go to Jerusalem, the very heart of Jerusalem, Jerusalem being the heart of the country, and then the heart of Jerusalem is the temple, which was on the Temple Mount, this large, uh, large, like acres large uh, site where everything was set apart for the religious worship of God. Which didn't mean people couldn't pray to God in other places, but they had a religious system which depended on sacrifices, and those sacrifices were offered at the temple. And so you would go to the temple, and, and so you'd go into Jerusalem, but when you got to Jerusalem, it's kind of like, yeah, I'm here, but there's that thing in the center of the city that I'm really getting to. I'm, I'm in the gates of the city, but I need to get into the temple area because that's the heart of everything that goes on here. And you would go into the temple, and they had these courts in the temple. It was like a, there was an outer court called the Court of the Gentiles. That's where me and you would be allowed to go. Anybody was allowed in there. And then there'd be an inner court called the Court of the Women, and Jewish women were allowed that far. And then there was a court of the men, and men were allowed that far. And then there was an area just for priests. And then there was a smaller area where the glory of God existed, where the high priests would go in once a year uh, to do special ceremonies that they had in their religion. But there was this sense of, of inner uh, holiness that existed there because the glory of God was known to exist in this place they called the Holy of Holies. And you and I would get into this court of the Gentiles and that's as far as we would get. And the court of the Gentiles was an important place. It was a very, very large place. But it was an important place because the people who worshipped would offer animal sacrifices and there were specific animals that needed to be offered at different times and those kinds of things. But it just wasn't practical for people and the society was getting more urban. If you were a shoemaker, you probably didn't have the right animals and so, or a sandal maker. Uh, so you would actually uh, go down there with some money and then you would buy an animal to offer the sacrifice with. But the common currency that everybody used, these Roman coins, would contain pictures of the Caesar on it. And the Caesar said that he was a god. And so the Jewish people had to live with something that they would consider heresy, this leader, because Rome basically ruled over the known world, this leader has these coins, 
And you can't buy things that are holy with such secular, such heretical coins that say this is a coin from this other God. And so there were money exchangers there. And if you wanted to offer a monetary gift to the temple, they wouldn't take a coin that actually went against their own faith. And so you would go to the money exchangers in the temple courts. And they had kind of a monopoly of sorts. There was nowhere else. Like you couldn't go and see what different banks were offering. It was like all of them would raise the prices. And so they were kind of gouging people who lived outside of Jerusalem and didn't have the right coins to use in the temple. And they would charge larger sums of money than what was reasonable so that these kind of things could happen. And so there was quite a marketplace going on just inside the court of the Gentiles, up on the Temple Mount, uh, because they could take advantage of religious uh, pilgrims or religious people who were coming to worship in a particular way because the laws said, uh, the laws of their religion said they had to worship in a certain way. And so to worship in that certain way, they, had, they were taken advantage of by people who knew how to work the system to their advantage. So Jesus comes into town. Uh, in John chapter 2, Jesus comes into town as it's Passover. And Passover is very much like a, it's a celebration of God delivers us. And when the people live under Roman rule, which involves uh, like the acknowledgement of their king, their Caesar being actually divine, and for people who have a monotheistic religion, meaning there is no God but God, commandment number one, you know, there is no God but God, then uh, this kind of Passover, God saves us from the Egyptian oppressors, there'd be this kind of sense that God will save us from these Romans as well. So this kind of fever or nationalistic or uh, like holy excitement uh, and energy and anxiety would be at a real high at this time, all right? It'd be like if you went the whole summer not knowing if they're going to follow the comic book or not, and now it's tonight, and you've got this anxiety, like, is it going to be Glenn? Is it going to be Daryl? And you don't know. Uh, some of you don't know at all, and it's good because you don't waste your time on television, but I have a high level of anxiety. I want to read this to you. This is John chapter 2. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up. See, that went up, even though he's going south from where he was. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords. Now, so you know, just back up a second because you're reading ahead. When you sit down and say, what are the things that Jesus does? You don't put on your list. Jesus makes a whip out of cords, right? Maybe Judas or Peter does that. But not Jesus, right? Jesus, he's probably got a lamb on his shoulders and he's walking around blessing people, you know, and, and those kinds. Of, he's probably got a hat and a robe and speaks with an accent, you know. But Jesus made a whip out of cords and he drove <laughs> all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. It's kind of this, um, maybe Jesus sort of stopped and ate on his way to the temple moment. It's kind of this out of the ordinary behavior that Jesus does. Because we like polite Jesus. We like healing Jesus, feeding Jesus. We like kind Jesus, right? 
These are all Jesus that we're into. <laughs> I went to a seminary. Um, let's say that's a thing. <laughs> but there is, uh, we like these versions of Jesus that we learn like in Sunday school and we see online in nice pretty pictures and Jesus is our buddy, right? And then we have this picture of Jesus walking into the city of Jerusalem, the city of God his Father, walking into the temple, the temple of God his Father, and he walks in and what he sees pushes Jesus, who, remember, is 100% man and 100% God, so it pushes Jesus, the divine human, to find some rope, right? Like there's not rope sitting around. And so Jesus turns to his disciples. I'm assuming this isn't in the Bible, but you know this had to happen. It says, hey, I need some rope. And a couple of his disciples who were suck-ups had some with them. You know, they just carried backpacks of everything. You never know when Jesus is going to ask us to rappel down a cliff, right? But um, So they pull out this, I don't know where they get this rope from, and then Jesus starts like braiding it or something. And, and they would have these whips that would have multiple strands. They didn't just have like one Indiana Jones whip. They would have a, a, a whip with multiple strands. And so Jesus starts braiding this together. And a couple of the disciples are not paying attention. They're over here, you know, like buying a hamburger or something and and they just kind of are there and a couple of disciples are paying attention because they want to suck up and help and they don't know what jesus is doing like um he's probably got his great story coming up you know like when we're braided together we're stronger together you know and it's kind of like it's you get it right and then jesus turns around and he's got this thing and he starts hitting people with it <laughs> right like, if you can, like, it's funny so far, but imagine this. Pastor James comes into church one day, and there's somebody selling this and somebody selling that, and the worship band is like, we'll do a better song if you give more, right? And then James is in the back, and we don't got ropes, so I'm, like, pulling out some microphone cables and, <laughs> and like, some extension cords or something, and I'm braiding it together, and everyone's like, oh, that is that crazy James probably got some funny sermon illustration, and then I start hitting people, right? This church has a well-trained security team to keep Jesus in check. <laughs> like, where were the people who would keep Jesus in check that nobody ever thought, hey, if someone comes in here and makes a small whip and starts throwing things, we don't have a way of stopping him, right? Like, Jesus was so rabid that no one thought, hey, I should stop this guy. Jesus is throwing tables, Money that was on the table is scattering everywhere. And no one thinks, I'm going to stop and pick up some of this money on my way out. Because they don't, because Jesus is hitting people. And cattle is running all over. And you wonder, like, why does Jesus do this? Because the way that Jesus should interact with a powerful city like Jerusalem is you start changing culture on the fringe, Right? Like Jesus, and we like to talk about this, Jesus reached people on the fringes, went to the people on the edges of society, and the slow change that would happen. But Jesus went right into the heart of the city and the heart of the country and the heart of their politics and their religion and their culture and said, this is unacceptable, and acted in a crass and violent and abrasive manner to change things. I think when we like Jesus, we want Jesus to come and change the things on the outside of our lives. 
change my stress level or change you know, my reaction to things or, or change the way I experience life or change my blessing or my circumstances or the situation I'm in, change my attitude or change my habits. And we want Jesus to kind of do this work in our lives out here on the edges of our life. And I think we see this pattern, not just here, this is just the funnest example, but there's this pattern of Jesus marching right into the center of things. Whereas Jesus doesn't actually have an interest in changing the periphery of your life until he's entered into the very heart and the soul of your life and who you are. I want to explain how I think salvation works, all right? I want to explain how I think it works when we follow Jesus. And I've got four verses because I've got these four steps. Uh, the first one is in Ezekiel. We'll put it on the screen. This is Ezekiel, one of my favorite prophets. And uh, he says to the Israelites, this is an Old Testament guy, so there's some Old Testament language. This is what the sovereign Lord says, Old Testament language. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. All right, here's what's interesting is Ezekiel 36 verse 26 talks about what I want to talk about. Verse 22 does not. So I'm going to look this up real quick and you can take that off the screen. <laughs> Professional pastors change their point and say, so what I want you to know here and I read that Sovereign Lord, and I went, I don't remember that word. And I'm having this little preaching panic, but that's, nobody notices because that happens most weeks. Let me read verse 26. <laughs> oh, Lord. Uh, verse 26 says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and put in you a heart of flesh. It's describing the change that happens, I believe, at the moment that someone turns from uh, disobedience and unrepentance towards God towards what we call salvation or being born. Jesus used the word born again. And Jesus, Jesus used those words. So when we're born again, it's not that God... Like, God doesn't change our stone heart into a heart of flesh. He doesn't change us from being hard into being soft. He actually, the Bible talks about how he makes us new. Like, he pulls the old out, and it goes away. The Bible talks about it going as far as the east is from the west, to the deepest parts of the ocean, where no one will ever pull it back. And he puts in something new, a heart of flesh into us, which is his spirit being put into us. And so from the very first moment of a person turning their lives over to Jesus, you're a new creation. The Bible uses those words. You're a new being. You're different than you used to be, but not changed. You're actually different. So it's not a fresh start. It's a removal and a giving. And the beginning of this is God changes out your heart. It's like a heart replacement. So God starts at the very core of you, changes who you are in your heart. That's what salvation is. The second part to this, after that has happened, let's play a verse roulette and see if it's Romans 12 too. <laughs> Woohoo! All right. If you keep putting quarters in, you're going to win. Uh -huh. 
Let's not put that on Facebook. <laughs> Do not conform any, to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's a transition that happens after God has given you a new heart to where your mind and your thinking actually changes. And that's a transformation. This is where who you are is actually changing. In the beginning, who you are is someone new. And then that new heart actually works with the renewing of your mind where your mind is actually thinking different as a person who follows Jesus. There's a pattern and a conformity to this world, like the Scripture says. The pattern of this world is self, then more self, then more self, then more self. That's why we find it unusual when someone does something kind to someone else, right? Like we post videos about it on social media and we get all excited. Look, here's someone who's kind. And, and we're like, that's remarkable because the pattern of the world is self, 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 self. And the Bible teaches us not to be conformed to this pattern, not to think self, 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 but be transformed by the renewing of our mind which happens through uh, Scripture and understanding Scripture so that you'll be able to know God's will. So it starts in your heart, and then it moves to your mind. And then it actually patterns out into your life. Let's go to the next Scripture, please. In uh, James chapter 1. All right, this is close. It's verse 5 and 22 I wanted, so I'm going to switch. Uh... A hundred years ago, preachers didn't have to put up with technology. They never had to get emails or... All right. And now preachers don't actually have to know where anything is in their Bible because it just appears on the screen. So this is kind of like a test. Your pastor actually reads his Bible. James chapter 1, verse 5 says this. If any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. And then verse 22 says, do not merely... Listen to the word, and so deceive yourself, but do what it says. Uh, James chapter 1 is a very practical book, and it actually says, uh, if any of you lack wisdom, and wisdom is more than knowledge, it's knowing what to do with your knowledge. Like just knowing things is great, but the wisdom is knowing how to apply the things that you know. Uh, a, a smart person has knowledge, but sometimes they speak at times when they shouldn't speak. A wise person has knowledge and knows when it's appropriate to share their knowledge. <laughs> so when we need wisdom, the Scripture actually teaches us if any of you is lacking wisdom, ask for it, and then God will give it to you. It's this strange thing because I don't think there's very many of us would say, I've got a lot of wisdom. You wouldn't say that because you probably compare yourself to people who are wiser than you. Or you have these heroes who make good decisions and good choices all the time. But if you need wisdom, you actually, the way to get wisdom biblically is to say, God, I need wisdom. Wisdom. <laughs> That's how this works. Now, if your prayer is, I need wisdom, you'll probably get an equal measure to the actual sincerity of your prayer. And I don't think... Um, Wisdom does a person with a lack of knowledge much good. And so there's this um, like interaction that happens between you growing in knowledge and studying your scripture and having a transformed mind to actually making good choices or biblical choices in your life that actually advance the kingdom of God, both in you and in the world around you. 
So judge gives you a new heart, renews your mind, and then your choices start getting in line with Scripture, start getting in line with the will of God. You start moving to action. Instead of just studying the Bible, studying the Bible, studying the Bible, I know everything in the Bible, you start doing what the Bible says. Because if you just get to heaven and you can answer all the trivia questions, you'll find out you're playing the wrong game. The, the following God isn't a trivia contest. It's an activity. It's an action. It's a way of living in the world around us. So your heart, your mind, and then your choices, and fourth, your compassions. In Colossians uh, chapter 3, can we go to the next one? Score. All right. We're batting 500 today. In Colossians chapter 3, it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. These are great verses because we like the beginning of them, right? We like clothing ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We like that. But then it gets down to the end and it says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And the scripture teaches us in the book of Romans that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So before we deserved forgiveness, Christ forgave us. And so when it says forgive others in the same way that Christ forgave you, it's a bit annoying. Because we have to forgive people that don't deserve it. And you know who those people are in your life, right? Like you forgive a lot of people who are nice and who you like and who are all right. But then there's those people who we're just not going to forgive them. We're going to say we forgive them, but we're going to hold a little bit of resentment in our heart. We're going to give them some real estate inside of us because there's just this, they don't deserve it. And when they earn it by meeting my standards of randomness and morality, when I like them, then I'll forgive them. It's this verse where Jesus, it's like Jesus so you know, here's the theme. Jesus is consistently doing things that may put us in awkward situations. Because there's people who I don't, no, let's say, there's people who are you don't want to forgive. Let's imagine that this isn't me for a second because that's how you feel about this verse too. But when we're actually allowing God to give us a new heart, renew our mind and make choices which are in line with biblical teaching and biblical thought and biblical action, then our compassion actually changes. And the people who are hard to forgive, it actually becomes a joy to forgive them because our viewpoint of the world changes. It's kind of like when a lot of people think God is mad at them or God is mad at a situation because I think God actually has a ton of compassion. If clothing yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience leads to forgiving others as Christ forgave us, or as the Lord forgave us, then God's first reaction towards you when you screw up or when you sin is compassion and gentleness and kindness and patience. And the truth is, some of you are very, very new to this kind of a system or new to this kind of a process, right? You're kind of in this system where you're like, okay, I've 
I'm, I'm going to get a new heart, and God is renewing my mind. My choices are still a bit sketchy, and I don't have a lot of compassion to the people around me. Maybe we'll get to that later, but I still have to drive on I-5 to work, and they do not deserve compassion. <laughs> but when we are changed by God, these things tend to get in line, and they, think they tend to work. And then we get hurt a little bit, or then we kind of let something, some resentment sit in our lives for a little bit, and things kind of, uh, they just kind of get a little stressful, or we forget that like um, how we live actually matters, and what we say we believe kind of backtracks a bit. So our compassion for a Christian who's been beaten down and has been tread on, their compassion tends to go away. They don't have the ability to see it through someone else's eyes. They don't have the ability to have a conversation with someone who's going to vote for the other person. <laughs> they don't have the ability to see how God see the world the way that God sees the world. And then your choices kind of change. As you back up a little bit more, you don't have compassion to the world around you and your choices change. And then your mind actually transforms backwards and your flesh heart actually turns harder and harder into stone. And there's this kind of process of falling away from Christ that I watched that goes from the outside in, whereas Christ actually wants to work in our lives from the inside out. And so at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, at the very beginning of at like chapter 2 of the Gospel of John, and there's these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but at the beginning of John is included this story of Jesus going into the very heart to change things. And then Jesus leaves and goes to the countryside and he's doing ministry as he started in the heart and he is working his way out. And then Jesus comes back to Jerusalem where Jesus is killed, where the religious people of his day take a, make a choice to choose power instead of following God. And Jesus is actually comes into the city of Jerusalem. And this is... If you remember, it's like Palm Sunday. Jesus comes in. If you grew up in Sunday school, it was the week they gave you a tree branch. You didn't know why, but it was exciting. You know, tree branch Sunday. And uh, all the people are rejoicing because Jesus is coming to town. And, and they think he might be the new king who's going to save us from this Roman rule. And we tell that story on Palm Sunday. And it's this great story. And we enjoy it. But listen Jesus comes in and they say, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. This is the King Jesus is coming to rule. And Jesus rides into town and they're putting palm branches on the road and putting jackets and blankets down for the donkey Jesus is riding as he's coming in. It's this great parade. And then we end the Sunday school lesson because what Jesus does is awkward. This is verse 12 of Matthew 21. Jesus entered the temple courts. <laughs> you know where this is going. And he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. It's kind of interesting to me that we avoid these stories because it seems like half the time that Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he's throwing things. And we think, our religious leader needs some counseling. Right? Jesus' like elder board was probably meeting with him and being like, maybe, Jesus, we could tone it down a bit when you go on these tours of Jerusalem. It, it is this moment where Jesus marches back in. Jesus, three years before, marches into the temple, 
throws everything and says, this isn't how this goes down. Everything has to change. He leaves and comes back, and guess what? It's exactly the same. The temple changed that day, the first day that Jesus was there. And I would bet you, kind of some of the brave or desperate money changers came back the day after Jesus. But I bet you they didn't just put stuff out on a table. They kind of like kept it somewhere in case Jesus came back. And then the next day, you know, Jesus didn't come back. And so this rumor came that Jesus had left town and everything's cool. And so the people with some animals came in and were like, hey, we're going to sell these at way above market price and rip people off. And then more and more and more. See, I don't think anyone falls away from a passion of following Jesus quickly. I think there's this slow progression. It might look quickly from the outside, but in their hearts, things change slowly as their compassion changed and their choices change and their mind change and their heart grows hard. And Jesus walks back in. And some of you have been following Jesus for a long time. And when I talk about your compassion and your choices and your mind and your heart getting harder and harder, you kind of recognize that and you kind of feel that. And what Jesus does is not come in and work on your compassion. He walks right back into the heart of everything and starts throwing things again. And I'll tell you, you know what's annoying when someone comes and throws your crap around? You know what's annoying when they come back, all right? Like, I'll forgive you if you come to my house and leave it a mess, but if you come back and do it again, we ain't friends. I don't want to throw those kind of parties, (laughs) but, but if you come into my house and you make a whip and start hitting people, I'm going to be like, you probably shouldn't come back. We ain't going to be close friends. But then I forgive you after a while and you come back and you do it again? Good night. But what if the person who's throwing things around is throwing things around because, like if Jesus comes in and he's throwing things around because of the hardness of our own hearts. It actually gets harder on us and more difficult to change the more we've gone back and gone back and gone back. And you think and you want to pray today, Jesus, I want to make little, small, incremental changes in my life to grow. And Jesus is over in the corner of your heart making a whip. And he's going to start hitting things. And Jesus, apparently, I mean, I love Jesus, and I know a lot of you too, too, but Jesus apparently isn't into your agenda for your life. Jesus apparently thinks that's cute and then hits it with a whip. Jesus isn't into your plan for success in your life or your idea of what you should do in following Jesus. Jesus is into God's idea. He's into making those two things match. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, then you're not asking Jesus to be gentle with you. It's kind of like, you know when you were in your 20s and you were trying to drop a few pounds and it was easy? And then you did that thing called the 30s. And you bought some DVDs and they didn't work. So you bought more DVDs and they didn't work. So you bought more DVDs and then you bought strange equipment. And then you got your 40s and then you get to, and it gets harder and harder and harder. It's the same kind of deal when Jesus works in our life. The more we keep wavering back and forth, the harder it is for us to actually get on God's program. So the idea would be, and I've heard that this works for fitness too, you just stay with Jesus. 
You just stay with Jesus' program for your life. You don't waver. And you actually invite Jesus in. Some of us want to get in shape through the easiest way possible. <laughs> it doesn't work. If, if you're looking for easy and you want to do something difficult, it doesn't work. If you want to do things that are remarkable in your life, but you want the easiest route to get there, and if you think it works, you're a millennial, but otherwise you know it doesn't work. We love you, millennials. Eventually. But there is this understanding that we need to have of Jesus. That his desire isn't to come into your life and make it nice and make it pretty and just rearrange the furniture. Jesus wants to come into the very heart of who you are and change that. He wants to throw your furniture around because what's been going on is not his plan. And when we invite Jesus to do those things, when we invite Jesus into the very core and open the door, Jesus comes back, and we remember last time he came here, everything in our life changed, and he comes back, and we actually open the door and say, Jesus, come on in. I know everything's going to change, but I think that's the right way to do it. I think that's the right direction to go. Our lives change. And we become disciples, not just fans of Jesus, not just people who like Jesus, but people who are actually changed, transformed, make different choices, see the world with the compassion of God because Jesus is doing a work in our heart. Let's pray together. Let's stand as we pray, all right? Our God, many of us in this room need to ask you right now to enter into the very core of who we are and work there. God, please don't start with our habits don't start with our compassions or our choices because we don't want to just work harder at following you. We don't want to just be better at following you. We actually want to change who we are. Sorry, we actually want you to change who we are. And so God, work in us in a remarkable way. Work in us in such a way that we are a completely new person. In your words, Jesus, may we be born again. And some of us, may we be born again and again, and again, and again. Because we confess, God, I confess, and many of us would also confess that we tend to get harder and harder in our hearts. And we need you in the very most inner parts of us to change who we are. May your grace extend to us in such a way, God, that you're willing to throw things around to make a whip in the corner and make changes that need to happen. Give us the mercy of being able to walk through the changes that you're making in our lives because we believe this hard work is the work of God in us. For your glory, God, for your glory, Jesus, may, you, may your spirit exist in us, in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, and in our viewpoint. Amen, by your grace.